Proverbs uh, 4, I picked verse 23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. We're in the middle of a, we're actually nearing the end now of our series. We've been talking about what happens after we die, and we've been looking at this primarily from the viewpoint of Christians, and um, so we're going to be in Revelation um, again today, and I think that's, that's a great reason for us to pray. We're going to pray over God's word. Would you agree with me? Lord, as we get into your word, what a privilege it is to be able to, to hold in our hands a book that is full of life that's inspired by your spirit, that's given so that we would know you and find our way, Lord, with you. Lord, speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. There's a woman who um, died after a long illness, and um, she was standing before the pearly gates, and um, before Peter got there, she peeked in and saw how amazing and fabulous it looked and, and how beautiful it was. And, and when he shows up, she says, boy, this is really, really something. How, you know, how do, I, how do I get in there? And Peter says to her, well, you have to spell a word. And um, she says, okay, well, I'm game. What's the word? He says, okay. Peter says to her, spell the word love. Okay. L-O-V-E. He says, right, you got it right, come on in, welcome to heaven, and so in she goes, and she's in there, and she loves it, it's wonderful, and time goes by, and after six months, one, one beautiful day, they're all beautiful days there, um, Peter comes up to her and says, hey, I'm not going to be able to be at the gate for a little while today, and I need to ask you if you wouldn't mind covering it for me just this one time. Um, you know the routine, and she says, yeah, fine, so she goes to the gate, and she's there at the gate waiting, and who would show up um, um, unexpectedly but her husband? Shows up at the gate, and six months have gone by, and, and she says, honey, what a surprise to see you here today. He says, yeah, you know, he says, I've been doing pretty well since you died, and, and uh, she says, well, tell me. He says, well, after you passed away, do you remember I married that beautiful young nurse that cared for you through that big, long illness, and, um, and uh, we got married, and then I decided just to, just to honor her, I would sell your wedding ring. So I sold your wedding ring, and with the money, we bought lottery tickets, and, and I won the lottery. And, well, of course, we had all that money, so we didn't want to stay in the little cottage you and I raised our family in. So we bought a big mansion, and we've been touring the world with the money. We've just, just got all this money now. And, and uh, today I went water skiing, and I fell, and the ski hit me in the head, and here I am. And she says, wow, that's quite a story. He says, how do I get in? She says, well, you've got to spell one word. (laughs) He says, what's the word? Pseudo-pseudo-hypoparathyroidism. (laughs) Aren't you glad our salvation, entry into heaven, doesn't come down to a test at the gate where you've got to spell a word or the whim of the gatekeeper in... uh, and, and it's not by any of those things, but instead we're saved by the, by, the, uh, by, by the blood of Christ and by the Lamb who is without spot and without blemish. And getting into heaven and helping others to find their way into heaven ought to be the highest priority of our life. Because this life is short and eternity is forever, and it's really long. And, and forever is what we're talking about. And so we're in Revelation chapter 21 today. And in Revelation, where we are at that place in, in the uh, book, we're in the, in, in the eternal phase of heaven. And in verse 6, it's God who's speaking, and he sits on the throne, and he says, And God said to me, It is done. 
And that declaration, when you read that, to me, it immediately takes, to, takes me to mentally to that place where Jesus is on the cross, and he said, it is finished. After all of redemptive history, God now says from the throne, it is done. Everything I've wanted to accomplish, including the salvation of souls and the judgment of the world and justice for Satan and all of those who, who, who committed evil with him and, and the kingdom um, has come to Israel where they ruled, where Jesus ruled for a thousand years and it's all accomplished. Time has run its course, it is done. Include, it includes everything. It includes a seven-year event called the Great Tribulation and this thousand-year reign and, and time designations like B.C. and A.D. They're all gone. This, it, it's finished. This now is the eternal state. Now, maybe you remember um, when you were in school that a teacher would get up in front and, and create a timeline when she'd draw a line or he or she would draw a line on a chalkboard and there'd be little points on there. Like the first point maybe would be your birth. And then you go down the, the, the timeline and another point. I guess you're going this way for you to look at it because time always goes that way, right? So, and then the second point would be um, maybe marriage. And then there'd be another point and maybe the point would be you have kids. And then after that, there's another point, you're broke. And then, you know, another point, that, you know, you, you go to heaven. And so, <laughs> so, you know, God is saying, you know, that's, that's our life. That's how we think. But if you want to draw a line that depicts eternity, it's more of a ray. It goes on and on, and it doesn't end. Time on, life on and on and on. And, and that day, that day that, that everything is finished, everything that we know is completely different than what we've known before. Our bodies are different. The environment's different. There's no sun. There's no moon. There's no sea. There's no sorrow, no death, no pain. Everything is new. Verse 5, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. So at this point, everything that we, you and I know about our present life, it's gone. It's different. There's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and this is forever, and now we're, we're in eternity. So what's eternity going to be like? You know, what's this new city of Jerusalem, what's it going to be like? Well, chapter 21 gets us there, and that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be starting this preview of, of what it's like. And um, if we were to, to, to describe this, this passage and maybe this scene we're going to look at in, in real estate terms, it would be kind of like a preview. We're going to take a look at the curb appeal. We're going to get a look at the outside. We'll be into this a little bit more next week. We'll talk about more on the inside. But so today's, today's God's description of what we can see from the outside, and we can learn a lot from this. We're going to see some splendor. We're going to see magnificence of this, this future home. And architecturally, this city is very different than any city you have ever seen anywhere ever. This is New Jerusalem. And God has anticipated, I, I appreciated the comments about, um, about Jesus and his fervent desire to have that, that meal with, uh, with the disciples and say, remember me in this because this is a big deal. This is why I've come. And God, likewise, has this fervent passion. He's been thinking about that city for a very long time. We even see it in, in, in Hebrews. There's a passage where um, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Abraham's viewpoint. So going back thousands of years, Hebrews 11.10, Abraham waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And this is that city. So we're going to be in Revelation 21, verses 9 to 21. 
But I want to back up just for a second to verse 2 to consider the making of this city because it says in verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, this word I, I, that leaps off to me is the word prepared. Later, we'll, we'll read in verse 10 that it's descending. And obviously, a lot of thought has gone into the city. There's been a lot of planning in the city. It's never, ever going to ever outgrow its infrastructure. You're not going to have a, a, a flagger on the road making you slow down so that they can add a culvert or whatever it is that they got to do. That's just, it's been perfectly planned and it's been prepared. And part of, we, that we know, part of the reason that we know that it's going to run smoothly is because it says it's been prepared and we know that God is not haphazard in anything. He prepares things, right? He wasn't haphazard in the creation of the heavens and the earth. It was all methodical day after day as, he, as the heavens and the earth were, were created. It was all sequential. It made, made perfect sense. And, and here's the promise that Jesus gave you and me in John chapter 14, talking about the same thing. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I share that passage, that little simple passage, at virtually every memorial service I do. It's so encouraging to know that Jesus has a plan. He goes, he's going to a prepare a very specific place, and it's, it's for me and for you. So this place is prepared, and it descends to, this, to the new earth, and it has been prepared just as hell was prepared for, if you know the scripture from Matthew 25, scripture says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was never designed for, for people. It's never the Lord's intention or desire for anyone to perish, but all to come to life in Jesus Christ. So, so the New Jerusalem is prepared for all of God's saved people. And it carries the name New Jerusalem, but it has a couple of nicknames. Now, this is where my studies go off the rail when I'm at home, okay? Because I start thinking nicknames and cities. Okay, I know some nicknames. Like, you probably know lots of cities with nicknames, like New York City's the Big Apple. Chicago, the... Windy City, yeah. I mean, um, Las Vegas, Sin City, right? Okay, Lost Wages is another one, yeah. Um, <laughs> Seattle has a nickname, the Emerald City. Did you know that Rochester is Ra-Cha-Cha? <laughs> That's actually Rochester, New York. I, I wish there was a nickname here for this Rochester, but I couldn't find one. Um, Bellingham has two nicknames. I don't, I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get this. Nickname number one, Let Us Surprise You. And the second one is City of Subdued Excitement. Whoopee. <laughs> Let us surprise you. Whoopee. I, I don't know what they're thinking there. Now, there's another one. I, okay, I, I completely lost it. I'm studying uh, nicknames, and one of them is Frutia, Colorado. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know it is. Okay, the home of Mike the Headless Chicken. Okay, you can check this out. I lost a lot of study time over this, okay? And this has nothing to do with New Jerusalem. But Mike the Headless Chicken, okay, in 1945, a woman says to her husband, this is true, you can look this up. She says, go get a chicken, we need it for dinner. He goes out there and he cuts the chicken's head off. But for some reason, the brainstem remained. It didn't die. The chicken lived for 18 months. They put, he took it to university, they studied it, it was documented, it went in a traveling circus, people paid 25 cents to go see the headless chicken. <laughs> There's 
pictures of the chicken walking and the guy's got the head in the other hand. Okay. Anyway, listen, it was no laughing matter because at 25 cents a head in 1945, at its peak, it was earning $49,000 a month. In, okay, so that's, 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 anyway, that has nothing to do with God. However, it's a nickname, Mike the Headless Chicken. Okay. Richland is the atomic city. Walla Walla, the city so nice they named it twice. <laughs> New Jerusalem, okay, let's get back to the scriptures. New Jerusalem is called the holy city in verse 2, the great city in verse 10, and in verse 11, the city having the glory of God. There's always been a lot of mystique and um, opinion and literature written about the earthly Jerusalem. There, there just always have been. Ancient, see, here's, here's a couple of sayings about Jerusalem. Uh, f- f- that sages used to say, God gave 10 measures of beauty to the whole world. Nine of them were taken by Jerusalem and one was dispensed through the rest of the world. The saying goes on. It says, 10 measures of knowledge were given to the whole world. Jerusalem took nine of them and one was given to the rest of the world. But, but it's not done there. It says, 10 measures of suffering were given to the whole world and Jerusalem has taken nine and the rest of the world has taken one. Another, another ancient saying about Jerusalem says, he who breathes very, the very air of Jerusalem will become a wiser person. Think about the history of this place. Just imagine all the things that happened there. Jerusalem is, from a, a, a biblical perspective, um, the geographical focal point of the world. Um, Ezekiel 5.5 5 says, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I've set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. Right in the very middle. Jerusalem is located on, on a land bridge that connects Europe and, and Asia and Africa. And when scripture talks about north, it's always meaning north from Jerusalem. When scripture talks about south, it always means south from Jerusalem. Same with east and west. It's the benchmark from which those, those, those directions always are referenced. So from a biblical standpoint, Jerusalem is the geographic center of the earth. But it's more than that. Jerusalem is the salvation center of the earth. There's no other place on earth where the salvation of souls has been purchased except a little hill outside of the city of Jerusalem, Golgotha. The second, a third thing is that Jerusalem is the prophetic, you know, it's like a, it's a storm center of the earth. The Bible predicts a time, we find it in, in, in the book of Zechariah, when all, all, all of the nations of the earth will gather together against Jerusalem, all nations, and the world leaders, they, they know this. I mean, if you look at the news, you can see it forming. You know, they, just, they just get, everyone, they get that, that Jerusalem is this hot spot in the Middle East, and especially when the topic comes up of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, another thing is that Jerusalem is the glory center of the earth. Ultimately, when Jesus comes back and has a thousand-year reign, he will rule and reign from there. He's going to fulfill Isaiah 2, verse 3. It says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the fact that it's a city that we're talking about here, this new Jerusalem, tells us some things about eternity. I think it's going to be a very, very social setting. I think it'll be very social. I mean, now maybe some of us more reserved, you know, quiet hermit types, which is kind of more describes me, maybe thinks, you know, yeah, you don't believe it. That's true. I mean, my thinking is, well, I don't really want to be in a city 
I thought heaven was going to be me with my 50,000 acres and everybody else can just bug off, you know, just go away, right? And um, keep in mind that when you get there, you're going to think a little differently. You won't be under the same kind of pressures. You won't have the same kind of problems with your neighbors or, you know, with whoever. And uh, the city's going to have, this city will have all of the advantages and, and all of the, culture, of, of, of the culture, but none of the disadvantages. It's not going to be any pollution, no garbage, no crime, no sirens, you know, no traffic accidents, nobody emerging on the freeway going 27 miles an hour while they talk on their cell phone. And verse 2 says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What a description. Look at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So I want to ask you a question. This doesn't have to be rhetorical. Who's the lamb's wife? Who's the bride? The church. The church. It's God's faithful, the church. Remember that for later. So John is now seeing this, and he's writing down what he sees in his vision. And what he sees, you know, what's going into his eye gates is this pure brilliant, bright, beautiful, breath. it's just this graceful place. Now, there are at least two viewpoints about how to understand that last passage. Um, I'm going to talk about one now, and I'll save one for a little bit later. One is that John sees the city because it's like a bride. It's described as a bride. It's like a bride. The word adorned in verse 2, uh, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the, 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 uh, the Greek word cosmeo. We get our word cosmetic from that. It literally means to beautify, to make attractive. And when this city comes down from the sky, it's like going to grab everybody's attention with this. It's just drawn there. The city's breathtaking. And the angel makes reference to it. And in the Bible, the, the closest relationship described on the earth is a marriage relationship. It's where people have the opportunity to really, really get to know each other in every way and in the most intimate ways possible. And, and very often, the, the word of God describes God's, God's people, his church, as Christ's bride. So we get that. So there's, there's this. And in their day, at the time that, uh, that John was walking around the earth, there were three phases to, uh, to a Jewish wedding. The first phase was called betrothal. And that makes me think of Joseph and Mary. They hadn't been through the actual ceremony, but they were betrothed. It, it, it lasted a year. It was kind of the engagement process. It was more than an engagement, but not quite completely the marriage yet. And, uh, and, then, and then somewhere around the end of that year, they wouldn't know exactly when it would be. This would be the second part. The groom would show up at the bride's house, make an announcement, and take her to his home. Um, for, for what would be the third part, which would be the wedding ceremony and the wedding feast. Now, right now, if we describe the church, the bride of Christ, we're in phase one. We're betrothed to the Lord, but the marriage, marriage feast with the lamb hasn't happened yet. So we're, we're spoken for, we're engaged to Christ, and we're waiting for him to come and get us. And that is an event that's commonly referred to as the rapture, and we've talked about that before in the church, where he takes everyone to heaven, all of, the, all of, his, all of his bride. And um, so today the Christian, Christians are in the betrothal phase. When, when Lisa and I 
we're, we were high school sweethearts. And um, when we were dating, um, I was really smitten. I'm still smitten. <laughs> um, I, I thought that'd be good for at least one. Oh, you know, I heard it from over here somewhere. But I wasn't a very nice guy. And <laughs> I just, this is terrible to stand by. I was a jerk, immature, and um, I was still flirting with other girls. <sighs> it just feels good to get that out. <laughs> I mean, I just wasn't a, I was, I don't want to say I was a typical guy. I'm just responsible for Terry. I wasn't a very nice guy. And, um, you know, I was kind of chasing her. And there was, came, came a point where we broke up. And, um, and I have to say that after that, I was miserable. I was miserable, and I realized what a mistake I had made. And I chased her down, and um, I could tell you sometime the reasons she gave that she wouldn't go out with me. She had to wash her hair. She had to clean her room. It wasn't until 10 years later that I realized those were made-up excuses. But anyway. Oh, come on. (laughs) Ushers, there's a woman in the front row causing problems. (laughs) Okay. I wanted to retort by saying dog ears, but that would be completely misunderstood. So, (laughs) yeah, she was a prodigy. She was a sophomore in high school at 11. Is that what your story is now? Okay, anyway, so I I realized how miserable I was, and I chased her down, and um, somehow we sorted things out, and and, um, we got married. I I, I point that out because I want that to be a contrast to Jesus Christ. It's, it, Jesus is not a jerk. He's not immature. He's not flaky. And he's absolutely sure. He's certain that you are the bride for him. There's no question in his mind. And he knows all about you, and he still wants you to be his bride. And that's beautiful. That's love. That's just a great... So here's my question for you, not to answer out loud. Do you have a personal, close relationship with your groom to be like a bride-to-be should have with the groom? Let me ask it another way. Do you flirt still with the world? Is there something in your life that needs to be swept out, removed, cut out, Do you need to return to your first love? Anyway, so let's pick back up at verse 11 and note how magnificent this city is. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, Three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Did you catch all of the descriptive adjectives? You know, holy, glory, great, high, pure, precious, magnificent. You know, I, I can't, I, I struggled to come up with something with which to compare this. I mean, I've thought about summer evenings where Lisa and I have maybe have, maybe you've done this before, where you've been on one of the Washington State ferries and you're, um, it's in the evening time, maybe in the dark in the summertime, and you're headed towards down to the waterfront in Seattle, and the city sparkles. If you've ever seen it, it's, re- it's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. And I'm thinking, you know, it, it'd be really beautiful, and it's somehow it doesn't get in the same even concept with what's being described here. And I think probably the most significant, the most 
striking and, and, and overarching characteristic that's being described here is mentioned in verse 11. It says, having the glory of God. God's glory is there. And John obviously wants to tell us about the light because notice that he says in verse 11, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. When we read that in English, we may not pick up on what he's saying there. That word light here is, is the Greek word foster. It, it, it means an illuminator. It's a light source. Light's emanating from it. It's not reflecting light from somewhere else. It's a light source. Light's constant. It's pouring out. Now, if you're a gemologist, don't be distracted by the jasper description. Jasper, to you and me, is an opaque stone. But this is a clear stone. Most commentators believe that he's talking about diamond here. And let's speak of the magnificence, verse 12. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels, and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, first off, the angel is not there to protect the city from bad guys. There are none present. And the gates are never closed, it's going to tell us later on. So it doesn't really explain. I, I, the best guess I got about why there are angels there, other than reminding us of the presence of the Lord, which is going to be obvious, maybe they're greeters. Hey, Terry, how you doing? Come on back in. How, how are you doing today? I don't know what their role is there. But the description now gets really amazing. And Consider the scale, verse 15. And he who talked with me had a gold reed. This is a measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, or stadia in the Greek. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So we're describing here a perfect cube. Okay? Um, it's a cube. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. So obviously, the Spirit of God wants us to know how big this is because we are given here very exact measurements. A furlong, in, uh, in our, our way of thinking, is about 660 feet. 12,000 furlongs is 1,500 miles. So this angel shares, after measuring, the city it measures it out. The city is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, and 1,500 miles tall. Now, I, I read this, and it, it reminds me of something else that's a perfect cube in the Old Testament. If you remember, the tabernacle had a little room inside the tabernacle that was called the Holy of Holies, which was also, it was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20. It was another cube, same exact dimensions. And so the walls of this city are 144 cubits. Let's just call that 216 feet. And the verse doesn't tell us if that's their height or their width. Don't know but it doesn't matter, whichever it is. The New Jerusalem is huge. It's gigantic. 1,500 miles per side. Okay, to give us a scale on that, if you set the city down um, from the Peace Arch to Mexico, the border, it would stick out a little bit on both ends. It, it's the distance, it's, it's from Maine to Florida. It's from Appalachian Mountains to the border of California. This is huge. If you stick all this together, it's slightly smaller than our moon. So this is a very, very big city, bigger than anything we've seen before. Now, if you, if you were to slice this city into layers, okay, because we want to walk on the ground and whatever, I mean, however that way, if you sl cre created a layer out of it, slice one layer, and you put a street grid on it, 
And we use the typical 10 to 12 city blocks in a mile, kind of a street grid. Okay, you're tracking with me. I'm going to kind of scale this out for you. You'd have 45 million miles of roads on that one layer. Okay, a lot of crisscrossing. Take you a while to get across town. Um, but don't worry, because these are safe streets. They're clean streets. They're made of gold. They're clean. So let's, let's, let's translate this into mansions. Let's just say for each one of these city blocks, we decided to have a mansion on each corner. So they're pretty big lots because everybody deserves a corner lot with a view and it's nice to have a corner lot. So um, if you calculate that out, um, you have over a billion mansions on this first level alone. Tracking with me so far? Okay, so got a lot of nice houses there. And remember, we, we read the words earlier, John 14, in my father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And he had all this in mind. And he gives it to John in the book of Revelation. New Jerusalem is not going to be crowded, okay? It's just not, it, it, everybody's not, for, let's just say that everybody was on that one level. Everybody was in a mansion, and there was a billion of us. They wouldn't all be there at the same time anyway. Some of them are going to be coming and going in and out of the gates, visiting the new earth and the new heavens and doing whatever it is people do. Or maybe they're on one of the other levels. I don't know that there are levels. I just know that it's huge. It's not going to be, it's not credit. But if we were to cut it into levels, like I said, and this first level was a mile tall, so you had some light, nice sky above your house, there's still 1,499 more levels. It's, it's big. So, okay, I want to keep going and wrap this up in verses 18 to 21 and talk about the material the city is made out of. Here's what John is seeing, verse 18. The construction of its wall was of jasper. Remember, that's clear as crystal. It's like a diamond. And the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls with each individual gate was one pearl and the city of the street was pure gold like transparent glass. And I have been trying to wrap my mind around this. It just defies description. I mean, obviously human language here comes up short describing our eternal... It, it doesn't, wouldn't matter whether you use Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew or English or German. Our language falls short. And, and some of what John saw here, it kind of, it's really hard to figure out because it says, the city was pure gold like clear glass. And that makes, doesn't make sense to me. I've never seen gold that's pure glass. But, okay, this is pure glass. And, and consider the description here of these stones. Sapphire is blue. Chalcedony is greenish blue. Emerald is deep green. Sardonyx is white with this reddish brown streak through it. Sardius is blood red. Chrysolite is yellow. Beryl is sea green. Topaz is yellow green. Chrysophase is this golden apple green. Jason, this sounds beautiful. Jason's is deep violent. violet. Amethyst is this rich, but, but it's a lighter color of purple. This is going to make the rainbow look kind of dull. And lights, lights emanating from this city. And I don't want, to miss, want you to miss what's going on in verse 21. This is the part of this description that kind of put me back on my heels. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. No, no doubt, verse 21 is where we get our concept about the pearly gates and all those Peter jokes, right? 
if the walls are 216 feet high, imagine this pearl. If the pearl is 216 feet, that's, that's got to be a gigantic oyster. But, of course, it wasn't made by a big, giant oyster. It was made by God. But here's what amazes me. As I'm reading through this, I'm, I'm reading this, this and, and my head goes, click. This has to be checked out. This does not make sense. I get that pearls are precious. I love pearls. I love them more after I've studied this out. I, love, I actually like them better than every other stone there. According to Leviticus 11, verse 12, your Old Testament, where God is saying what's clean and what's unclean, according to that passage, shellfish were declared by God as unclean. The New King James Version says it's an abomination to you. The law basically said you didn't touch it or you became ceremonially unclean. A pearl is an unclean object. Nothing else on that list is listed by God in the Old Testament as unclean. There's probably no more perfect symbol to represent our entrance into God's presence than a pearl. Consider how a pearl is formed. It's formed when the oyster has an irritant, a foreign body, an imperfection inside of it, like a grain of sand. And whatever it is, whatever this imperfection is, it doesn't belong there. It's dirty. And the oyster's response to the irritation is a pearl. The oyster creates this fluid called knacker and, and, and puts a little tiny layer of it on there and another little tiny layer. And each layer is not very thick. I mean, so thin, you have to see it in a scanning electron microscope. If you ever looked at a pearl up close, that's how much magnification you need to see the layers. Little tiny layers of covering. And and this, this covering, it does it over and over and over. And this covering hardens and becomes this beautiful translucent pearl. A pearl is a, is a precious stone formed by the suffering caused by an imperfection. Sound familiar? <laughs> now that, that is the perfect and most ap- emblem of my entrance into the eternal city. Because what injured Jesus Christ was my sin, mine. We, we are the irritant that God has chosen to make beautiful. And every time you go in and out of that city forever and ever, you're going to be reminded of this, this truth. Access to the city is granted only through Calvary. Calvary. It's, uh, Calvary. It's only by grace because of our sin. So Jesus washes our sin and he covers us and he makes us beautiful and precious enough to stand in his presence. Maybe you think you don't deserve his response. And if you think that, you're actually right. None of us do. We don't deserve it. But here's the thing. God doesn't think that way. Remember earlier I said I'd give you the other viewpoint about that passage, Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven and from God. I agree with everything we talked about before. It's beautiful like a bride. 
But I also see something else going on here. I believe that this angel, this messenger of God, was showing John the actual bride. John describes the city, but the city is not the bride of God. The church is the bride. In spite of the indescribable sparkle and beauty and just the beauty of the, 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 the jasper and the gold and the jewels, God's eye is not, is, is, the God's eye here is let me show you the, the bride. God's eye is on the bride, not the stuff. It's on you. It's on me. God so loves his people that he made a way, and actually he made the only way to get you into heaven. Do you know that there, there is nobody that's going to be in heaven that got there by being good? Not a single person. Every single person in heaven who will be there has at some point declared in their heart, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I can't get there on my own. I need Christ to, to cover my sin. He paid the price. There, there won't be anybody who's proud in heaven. There won't be any. And the thing that makes this whole salvation thing hard for us is, is that we have to humble ourselves and, and admit my sins are the irritant. I, I need to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed and I need to be covered. I need Christ. I have to have, and I have to, and I'm going to come to Christ and I'm going to do it under his terms. If you've never, ever opened your heart to the Lord, I plead with you to do this today. We read last week about the Lamb's book of life. Scripture says that no one will be there whose name is not written in that book. And the, 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 the names that are in the Lamb's book of life are the names of those who are the Lord's faithful. Not the people who've kept laws and able to try to be good people, but the, those who have said, I surrender. I can't do this, and I need you, Jesus. Be my Savior. If you've never done that before, I encourage you to do that now. And church, you know, I give this opportunity. I talk about it in church. And some of us might say, well, maybe next time. Or maybe you have recently said, I've made that decision. What do I do now? What I would say to you is get your hands on a copy of the Word of God and start studying. Fellowship with other Christians. Come to worship. The Lord will begin a walk with you, and he will lead you. Scripture promises that the Lord orders the steps of the righteous, and he'll lead you in that. Let's pray. God, today... I want to thank you that you love people enough to do something like this. And I, 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 I love the fact that, Lord, that you can build something that exceeds even our imagination. Your scripture set, tells us that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered the heart of man the wonderful things that the Lord has in store for his children. We can't really even conceive of it. Thank you, God, that, that it's so, so wonderful. And then you made a way for us to get there. Lord, we open our hearts to you. While we're praying with eyes closed, can I just agree with you in prayer? If there's anyone here who's never opened your heart, I'd like to agree with you in prayer. I'm not going to embarrass you. you. Just look up at me if that's you, and I'll, give me a hand wave or something, and I'll pray with you. Thank you, God, for a room full of your children. Lord, help us to hear the whispers of your voice if we've flirted with the world so that, Lord, we might be ready for the groom. I pray these things in Jesus' name.
Well, before we leave church, we want to offer a moment of ministry to you. If you have, we just want somebody to touch and agree with you in prayer. I'm going to have the prayer team come up, and uh, they're going to be right over here to my right, your left. But before we leave, would you stand with me? And let's just make this our prayer. Holy, there is no one like you. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show. stand up and I make a stand and I declare you are my God and I'm going to build my life upon your love there's no firmer foundation than the love of God for us amen and as you do that I believe that he's going to send you out and you're going to run into places where he's going to use you mightily and that's amazing to me that he could use me just as much as he could take an irritant and make a pearl he can take an irritant make a pearl for somebody amen and that's what he wants to do it for you church hey on your way out don't forget donut wall and sign up for baptisms and membership classes and again we want to minister to you and with you if you need prayer come forward we'll pray with you goodbye church